Well, good morning once again here on the first Sunday of Advent. Please open with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18 today as John turns to close this letter. First John chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John's main point in this section is that those born of God can have confidence that Jesus will both answer their prayers and keep their hearts from evil. On the heels of what I mentioned last time was one of the two dozen or so most challenging texts in the New Testament. John gives us another one that belongs to that exact same set. So we have back-to-back heavy lifts, I'm afraid. And if you were not committed to something like expository preaching, no one would ever preach on this text, I just have to say. Have we talked about the baseball analogy for preaching? If not, ask a friend, okay? This is a walk to first, okay? Okay? One of the largest challenges of preaching a passage like this is that what's going to take up a lot of our time in exposition isn't, isn't actually the main point. Isn't actually the main point. It, it, it's what John is not saying. It's actually it's going to take up more of our time just because it's more difficult to explain. Uh, just because it's more difficult to explain, but so be it. This is the Word of, of God, and so we are going to work through it together. The, so, the section is broken up into two parts Kind of. Kind of. And I say kind of because the asking and praying in the first part shows back up in the second part and we'll need to be very, paying very careful attention to how they are related to one another because they are definitely related. And so as John moves to close the book, he gives his clearest purpose statement that forms a bookend, a technical term, an inclusio with the prologue of the letter where he says we write these things so that our joy may be complete, Here he gives a more directional purpose statement. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I do want to point out how similar this purpose statement is to the purpose statement of John's gospel. You recall in John 20, 30, and 31, John says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these, that is to say the ones John has recorded and ordered very specifically, these are written, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. A lot of similarity there, but there's a crucial difference. There's a difference in the two purpose statements that's important. 
The, the purpose statement within the gospel is evangelistic, isn't it? That you may believe. Purpose statement at the end of the gospel. Purpose statement for the letter is giving assurance to those who are already believers. Okay? One, calling out of darkness, gospel, evangelistic. The letter, giving assurance and confidence to those who are believers that they have eternal life. And that's why 1 John talks quite a bit about the two categories of darkness and light and being of God, being of the world, having the father of God and father of the devil. But he says very little, if anything at all, explicitly about the process of moving from one camp to another. You notice that as we've gone through the letter? Here's how the people in darkness behave. Here's how the people of light behave. Here's how we can know this. But there isn't a huge amount of, of uh, ink, so to speak, devoted to how you move from one section to another. That's the gospel. That's John's gospel. The letter is to give us primarily to give assurance to believers. They could know that they have eternal life. And then John returns to and develops a theme that he already addressed in chapter 3, 19 and 20. Turn back with me. In fact, you may not have to turn anything, uh, depending on how your Bible's laid out. But back up with me to chapter 3, verse 19. And uh, let me just read a couple of these verses here. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Listen to the similarity with verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him. This is the confidence we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. For John, this, this reality of eternal life is not simply some calming thought about the future. Okay? It's something that actually grounds a disposition and posture for the believer now. One of confidence. Confidence. Because you have eternal life, there's confidence, particularly confidence in prayer, that if we come to God in accordance with His will, He will hear, and thus, in light of who He is hearing, that we will have our requests given to us, whatever we ask. Now, I do not have time to work through what I dedicated an entire application section to about ask, receiving whatever we ask. So what I'm going to do briefly is just present a slightly retooled version of the illustration that I used uh, to help us get our minds around what initially seems to be like an, an extraordinarily strong statement about asking with expectation that we shall receive. It seems to be a very strong statement. So the illustration, this is slightly revamped, but is essentially the same. Is, uh, my daughter, she, she knows that I love it when she makes art for me and then when she draws pictures of me. I can't say that most of them look like me, or at least I hope they don't, um, in some of the product. But she knows that I love and I desire her to make art for me and to even draw pictures of daddy. She knows this about me. And, and on one occasion, uh, she held up a dry erase board there on our couch, and she 
she pointed and she said, hey, can you hand me that marker? And I knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to draw, particularly she wanted to doodle and erase. She wanted to draw a picture, of, uh, draw something for me. She knows that I love doing that when she does that. Uh, but what she pointed to was a Sharpie and not a dry erase marker. And instead, she wasn't looking, not that we really made a difference, but I gave her the dry erase marker instead of the Sharpie that she asked for. Okay? Sharpie was over here. I gave her something that was actually over here. She took it. She said, thank you, Daddy, and she went on to draw her picture. And in so doing, I want you to listen to this, I gave her exactly what she needed to do exactly what she wanted that aligned exactly with what I desired. Right? I gave her exactly what she needed to do exactly what she wanted, which aligned exactly with what I desired. And it's also true, I did not give her exactly what she asked for. That's what's going on right here, I'm suggesting. John is saying that when we, when we live before God, which includes praying according to the will of God, we live according to the will of God, pray according to the will of God with a desire to see our holiness advance, for God to display His glory, to, to show His mercy, to call people out of darkness, that we, when we pray in that confidence according to His will, with that being our overriding desire for our whole life, we will always get what we want in the manner that Callie got what she wanted. He will give us what we exactly what we need to accomplish exactly what we're ultimately after as we order our lives according to the will of God, which will align with exactly what God ultimately desires. So, in light of eternal life, John says we can have confidence in prayer. And the question I just want to ask before we go to the next verse is, do you have that confidence? Would you say that? And I'm not asking for a raise of hands, certainly. But would you say in the quiet of your heart, my prayer life is a confident, powerful prayer life? Or is it a weak, anemic prayer life? My head hits the pillow, maybe. That's when I pray. I pray when I need a bailout. Do you come before God with confidence? Show up! And with expectation. And if not, I want to just ask why. You have every reason to have confidence before God in prayer. It will transform your prayer life when you actually believe that we can ask it and we'll receive. So I want to challenge, I want to ask you that question. Think about that yourself. You should have confidence. You have every reason for confidence. After all, you have eternal life. You have eternal life. And then in what feels like kind of a great abruptness, I would say, John shifts direction, but it's critical to remember that he is not leaving behind the, the asking and praying subject altogether. Verse 16, he says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. Okay. Verse 16 is a very long, challenging verse that can really only be fully understood in conjunction with verses 17 and 18. And so my approach for walking us through this one is actually going to be a little bit different. What I'm going to attempt to do is 
ask and then answer three questions. And in so doing, we will have walked through the text. And these are the three questions that I want to ask and then attempt to answer. The first is, what is sin that leads to death? What is sin that leads to death? First question. Second question, what does it mean that God will give life to brothers whose sin does not lead to death? Second question. Third question, what does John mean by, I do not say one should pray for that? Okay, we have our work cut out for us, I'll just, I'll just say. But let's take them in turn. First, what is sin that leads to death? As you might expect, the question has been answered in a whole host of ways. Suggestions include particularly horrific sins like murder or rape or adultery or this and that. A more well-developed understanding of that first suggestion, which is a kind of more popular level suggestion, is the Catholic understanding of a mortal sin. Catholics have an understanding of a mortal sin. They point to a verse like this, a mortal sin is a sin which if not properly addressed with penance and the sacraments before someone dies, it, it takes them out of a state of grace. Essentially, you're going to go to hell if you commit a mortal sin without uh, pro appropriately uh, having the sacraments administered, particularly penance, repentance, all the rest, confession. That's, that's been a suggestion there. Another suggestion, and this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit from Mark's gospel, a sin that will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come, Jesus says. Another, another suggestion is this actually is talking about capital death, capital punishment, that, that a sin, you sin in a certain way such that you are physically struck dead. Okay, you think of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, you think of Agrippa in Acts 12, or there's sins that lead to act God actually through disease or through instant miraculous just boom, just you're dead, like dead, dead immediately because of a sin that you've committed. I don't think any of these are persuasive, just let me tell you why briefly. The first and second about the particularly horrific sins is that Christ's propitiating blood uh, was not only effective for the little sins, okay? And the idea that there are little sins before a completely holy God, I would say, is just conceptually incoherent anyways. Either you fall short or you don't. Nowhere, of course, anywhere else in First John or the rest of the New Testament do we get the idea that there are certain sins that one can commit, but after you commit it, there's, there's no path back. There's no path back. Too bad for you. New repent and believe, but like repentance and belief for you is now rendered no longer effective, simply not something that we see in 1 John or anywhere else in the New Testament. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a slightly better suggestion, but only slightly, and that is because uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is identified very particularly, not as just some uh, generally bad sin or opposition to God, but as attributing a work of the incarnate Son of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the work of Satan uh, to, to, excuse me, Satan and or demons. Seeing something that God, the Son of God did through the power of the Holy Spirit and attributing that work to Satan or demons, a subject that has absolutely nothing to do with 1 John, uh, or this, and certainly not the specific context, and, and, and in addition to being a sin, that it's not at all clear someone can still commit after the resurrection of Jesus, because there is not an incarnate Son of God going around doing miracles by which a very particular claim could be made. So it's not even clear that that's something that's possible. But finally, and this will figure very prominently, so pay very close attention to this one. The text does not say that there is a certain sin which, if committed, 
leads to death. Or there are certain sins which, if committed, lead to death. Understood as if you do this particular sins or you do a sin that falls in this particular class, you commit one of these kinds of sins. That's not what it says. It strongly suggests to us that we are talking about a particular kind of sin. A particular kind of sin and not particular sins that could potentially be committed. So just hold that thought. We're going to return. The capital punishment interpretation is simply dead on arrival. Why? Because it is obviously contrasted with life here, and life in John is always not just DNA and a pulse, as I've harped on so long throughout this letter, but is eternal life. And so the death here is not just physically dying. It certainly refers to spiritual death, eternal judgment, the opposite of eternal life. And so what should we say then? What should we say? You might remember when we looked at chapter 3, 4 through 10, which was included in the second scripture reading you heard Laura read, I said to remember what we concluded there. Some of you are thinking back, like, okay, what did we conclude? Because we would be circling, we're going to, I said we'd be circling back to it, and that time is now. Here we are. We have arrived where we are, we have arrived at the point at which we are going to dip back into some of those conclusions And let me very briefly refresh your memory regarding our conclusions back in chapter 3, okay? And if you have not, this is a very quick summary, and you may need to go back and watch it for this to be fully persuasive. But nevertheless, after making it very, very clear that Christians will sin and can turn to Christ for forgiveness in chapters 1 and 2, John introduces a category in chapter 3 called lawlessness or anomia. Anomia, not law. Lawlessness in the Greek. Excuse me. It's, a, it's this word that suggests a posture or an attitude of rebellion against God that's often used in the context of final judgment. So in Matthew chapter 7, just as one example, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do many mighty words cast out demons? And you say to me, Away from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay? Lawlessness associated with kind of final judgment there. Again, this posture or attitude of rebellion against God that results in sin. And what John says as the passage develops is that there are people who sin, and then there are people, if you remember, who do sin who do sin. It's M.O. It's their M.O. It's just what they do. You heard someone say that before about something? It's just what I do. There's people who that's just what they do. So there's sinning, and then there is a construction doing sin that the ESV translates as make a practice of sinning because they're trying to shepherd everyone's theology a little bit. Doing sin is not something ever attributed to a Christian in 1 John. Okay? Doing sin. Back in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. The do sin construction does not appear there. Similarly, in 1 John chapter 2, I write to you, little children, so that you do not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ the righteous. With the Father, excuse me, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, that construction isn't there. But if we do, if we do sin, it's, of course, in the English, they translated it as do sin. But the, the Greek construction is simply not there. There are very clear, is very clearly sinning, 
and doing sin. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up on the screen the graphic that I concluded that sermon with just to help us get a little bit better grasp of this before we dive back into chapter 5. What John concludes in, in, in uh, chapter 3 there, verses 4 through 10, is that children of the devil have lawless hearts like their father, the devil. Therefore, they practice deceit and falsehood. And that looks like doing sin on account of rebellion that is stubborn and enduring. Contrast that with children of God. They have new hearts from their father. Practice righteousness and the truth, which involves sinning, but on account of weakness that is confessed and forgiven. Okay, Lawless sin continued in that leads to judgment. Not yet perfected sin that is repented of and leads to life. Both categories of people sin. They're not the same kind of sin though. Now, with that distinction in place, go back to chapter 5, and all of a sudden, verses 17 and 18 become very compelling. Look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Whoa! That sounds shockingly similar to the distinction that we just made and that we saw back there in 1 John chapter 3. All wrongdoing counts as sin, but not all wrongdoing is sin in the, in, in the same way or of the same kind. Yes, exactly. Namely, it's not sin that leads to death because it is the fruit of lawlessness inside of me. Lawlessness inside of me. And if there is any doubt that John is revisiting and developing what he already laid out in chapter 3, he revisits more of that language in verse 18. Uh, read verse 18 with me. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Listen to how similar that is to chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, and verse 9. John writes, Everyone in, in four, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So you listen to that, you listen to verse 18, we, under, we, we, get, we, we get the idea that there's wrongdoing, but it's not all the same. It's not all the same. Some wrongdoing does not lead to death. And so once we put these pieces together, and again, you, some of you may need to go back and watch the other sermon on 1 John 3. I understand how quick of an overview that was. But I think we have the pieces in place taken in conjunction with the primary theme of 1 John, to identify the kind of sin that leads to death. Not a particular sin committed, but a particular brand of sin. And what I would suggest is this. Sin that leads to death is sin fueled by stubborn rebellion against and rejection of the Son of God who has come in water and blood. Who has come as the incarnate Messiah. 
the kind of sin stemming from a heart of lawlessness leads to a lethal kind of wrongdoing. Why? It's not primarily because the fruit's too rotten to be redeemed. That's not it. But it's because the driving force that produces the rotten fruit also drives people away from their only hope of life. Okay? It is the ultimate self-sabotage. It is the ultimate self-sabotage. It is not merely lacking perfect holiness. That's the sin of the believer. It is the presence of and rejection of and the rebellion against anomia, the one who gives life, and therefore it is a kind of wrongdoing that necessarily ends in death. It necessarily cuts one off from eternal life. Sin that leads to death is sin fueled by stubborn rebellion against and rejection of the Son of God who has come in water in blood. Given the language John has already used, that he uses again here, this is what I believe to be the most compelling understanding of the kind of sin that leads to death. And by the way, notice how, notice how it's defined here. The important part isn't that I identified any individual particular sin. However, all of them in one way or another are aimed toward rejection of the Son of God as He's revealed Himself. Okay? It could be a prideful expression of anomia or a, 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 a sexual impurity expression of anomia or a um, you know, whatever. It, it could look a bunch of different ways. But the idea is it's the fruit of lawlessness, whereas the believer's sin, they, they're not sinning out of lawlessness. They're sinning because we still have, unfortunately, that Adamic residue on our soul and we are not yet perfect. Where someone who is sinning out of lawlessness just continues on because they're rebelling. Someone who sins out of lack of perfection repents and believes the gospel and fights, seeks the forgiveness of Christ. A sin that leads to death. Okay, so with that in place, we turn to the second question. And the second question, if you recall, is, what does it mean that God will give life to those whose sins do not lead to death? There are kind of two main difficulties here. One is, first, isn't it the case that in John, a brother already has life? I mean, he's talking about brothers. He's talking to the brothers. If that's so, what does it mean that it will be given to him? What does that mean? Another challenging is understanding who the pronouns refer to. You will likely be surprised to know that the word God is not actually in the verse. It's not. And if you look down, you probably have a superscript, a little number, and it takes you down to the bottom of your page, and it says, He. He. Literally, the verse in the Greek reads, He shall ask, and He shall give him life. So who's the he referring to? I see someone sinning, not leading to death. He shall ask God and he will give him life. What are we supposed to... What, he, I'm sorry, I said I, I ruined that. He shall ask and he will give him life. What's going on there? First, though, let me point out that unlike the phrase sin that leads to death, envision here we have a brother or sister committing a sin... Or in the second part, someone who commits sins not leading to death. Very different language. These are 
acts that you can see people doing. These are particular things. It's not a particular brand of sin that might have an infinite number of expressions. These are particular sins in the life of a brother or sister in Christ. And in conjunction with the fact that John is writing to give people confidence and not terrify them, it becomes clear that we're talking about someone who can't, in John's categories, do sin. They have a new nature. They've been born from above. They can sin, but they don't have lawless hearts. And therefore, though they sin, they will not do so in a way that leads to death. And so instead, we see a reference here to a sins that a believer commits that can be observed, okay? That can be observed in the community and therefore who can be prayed for. Well, what about these ambiguous he's? What's going on here? Unfortunately, it's as ambiguous in the Greek as it is in the English. But, but, but because of what has just come before it in terms of God granting requests in prayer, regardless of what's pictured here as someone being kind of an intermediate tool of giving life to someone, or God is the more direct, and he refers to God, it honestly doesn't matter. It still remains the case that God is the primary agent of giving life, whether it's through an intermediate means, and it's saying that you can give someone's uh, life through your prayer, praying for them, or that God is the one who just more or less directly does it. Well, you might think of evangelism as an example. I might, I might be an instrumental cause in giving someone newness of life, but I'm certainly not the, the, the ultimate cause, right? God used me as a means, and maybe I could be referred to as giving someone life because I shared with them the gospel. But, but what are we to make? So regardless, I don't think a lot depends on that one, honestly. It is ambiguous, but I don't think a lot depends on it. What are we to make of the idea that the brother, as a result of this prayer, will be given life? Some people have suggested that brother here just kind of means people who are in the congregation, but who John weren't, knew were not Christians, and he just kind of lumped them in. That sounds like an explanation of someone who's not really even trying, okay? John uses the word brother consistently to refer to someone who has eternal life. Someone that has eternal life. And so it's been suggested that, hey, you know what this means? It means that God will give repentant believers a confirmation of the fact that they have eternal life, that, you know, that they are children of God. That's what it means, that he's giving them confirmation of that. Another suggestion is that John is saying that God will grant forgiveness to the repentant believer. And, and that understands life here as identical to forgiveness, although it isn't used that way anywhere else in 1 John. And that's, that's, that's a struggle. I want to suggest that there's a much more straightforward way to understand what John has in mind. It falls along the lines of what we discussed in our Sunday school earlier this morning. But John has already hinted at it himself when he says that believers not only have eternal life, but we have the promise of eternal life, 1 John 2.25. Eternal life is perhaps the paradigmatic example of the already not yet phenomena that we see on the pages of the New Testament. The kingdom has truly come already 
but it has not yet come as it will. We have been raised up with Christ, says Colossians 1. And yet, we have not been raised up as we one day will be. I could go on and on with these elements that we have already, but that also have a not yet element to them. And eternal life is one of the most clear-cut examples that we can provide Remember the words of Jesus himself in John 6.54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So implicit in that is they have eternal life, but guess what? They're going to be dead. They're going to die. And then I will raise them up. Already, whoever does this has it. This is consistent with John's theology in the gospel and the letter. It's something we already have. And yet, there is something in the future. Jesus says to Martha, after the death of Lazarus, famously, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I already have life but I don't have it like I will have it. There is truly a future aspect of eternal life that we have not laid hold of yet. That we have not laid hold of, but we are promised. We are promised according to the will of God. And so, things begin to fall into place to right here then. Don't things begin to fall into place of what John is saying? I think the cleanest solution here by far is to understand John to be saying, again, on the heels of praying according to God's will, that God will raise repentant brothers and sisters up on the last day and they won't miss out on what was promised to them, the eternal life that awaits them. There is a not yet part of what all of us have, have, uh, all of us have yet to experience. And what John is saying is because prayer is powerful and effective and because we can ask God and be confident what we receive because those who have life will also have life then, that if you see someone sinning, to pray for them because God answers prayer and that that person, in accordance with the very promises of God, will be given eternal life on that day. It's not as though they don't have it. They have the already, but it, they don't have the not yet. What John is saying, I'm suggesting, is he is appealing to that aspect of it, the not yet part, and saying that is not going to be at risk. Repent and believe the promised inheritance awaits you. You will receive according to the promises. Finally, let's turn to our third question. What does John mean by, I do not say that one should pray for that? Is John being hard-hearted here? Is he saying that we shouldn't pray for our family and friends who seem to be in full-on rebellion against God. Is this a prohibition? And in a word, I think the answer is no. Throughout 1 John, when John gives imperatives, he gives them very straightforwardly. Very straightforwardly. And here he speaks in a way that every commentator, and you don't have to be a commentator to understand this, he speaks in a very roundabout, awkward way, doesn't he? Doesn't it just sound weird? Doesn't that sound weird when you read it? I do not say that one should pray for that. This awkward, kind of cumbersome sentence clarifies 
what John is not saying. He clarifies what he's not saying. He says, I'm not forbidding prayer for such people. However, in mentioning this, he is communicating that prayer for those who are in stubborn rebellion against God and who have rejected the Son is not what he had in mind in verses 13 through the beginning of 16. Okay? He is saying, I'm not saying this, but by virtue of including a clarification of what he's not saying, he is clarifying that his discussion of the asking and receiving that he's been talking about has been with a bit narrower of a focus. And so now we have the return of the purpose statement that I said would come back into play. John's letter is not about evangelism. But we need to pray for them and seek the lost. Yes. Absolutely. But John's particular letter and his particular circumstance with his particular purpose is not primarily evangelistic. It is primarily for the purity of, the assurance of, growth of, fellowship between, love among believers. Believers. And so here he's clarifying explicitly, and he's already done so implicitly by giving an example of a believer who is seen committing a sin, that he is making more focused comments about prayer for those who believe in the name of the Son of God. First thing, uh, verse 13, excuse me, he's not giving general commands or general prohibitions. Not giving general commands or general prohibitions. And in doing so, he repeats a similar phenomena that, we, that he gives us in the gospel in John's uh, record of the high priestly prayer. In John 17, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. Now the them in context ends up being the disciples. But in saying that I'm not praying for the world, Jesus is not being callous. He's not being indifferent. After all, He came to be the Savior of the world. He's not suggesting that He never prayed for the world. But He was suggesting that at the particular moment, right before His departure, that's not the particular thing He was praying for. He had, some, he had something different in mind in that crucial moment before His more focused concern. Let me give you an illustration here. Our community was devastated by a tragedy at the Covenant School. And there were many calls to prayer in, in different ways. And imagine someone, as we were, maybe let's just say we're, you were explicitly saying, hey, I think we should you know, pray for this in your home or your community group or whatever. And someone mentioned, well, there's people on the other side of the world who need Jesus. You might think, well, I understand, but that's just not what I'm, we're directing our prayer towards right now. I'm not saying not to pray for people on the other side of the world. But there's a particular need. There's a particular event. We find ourselves in a particular moment using this illustration. And so similarly, John is writing to a community rattled by heresy that has experienced fracture 
and have even been potentially led to doubt that they even have eternal life. And he is simply clarifying that the asking and the receiving and the confident prayer dynamic that he has in mind is geared toward the body of Christ and not prayer towards those in open, sustained rebellion against God. You know, there are times where it is okay to close ranks. There are times where it is okay to go internal. There are times where it is okay to be more focused. And that doesn't mean, I'm not saying you cannot pray for these things, but hey, this is what our emphasis could be on for this reason or this season of a church or this season in your family or whatever the case may be. So John, to be clear, is not forbidding praying for people who are in open rebellion against God. What he is clarifying is the dynamic of prayer that he's been talking about. What he has in mind is praying in accordance with the will of God for the people of God and therefore having confidence as a result because everyone in the picture has eternal life. Okay? And so in the spirit of giving confidence of eternal life, look with me just once more at verse 18 as we close. John writes, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We've already explained why. But he who was born of God protects him. Now, unfortunately, there's a huge textual variant here. But... The best folks, as far as I can tell, render it exactly like the ESV has it here. He who was born of God. That is to say, the Son. That is to say, the Lion of Judah. That is to say, the Messiah. He who is born of God, Christ, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him because he belongs to Christ. And so I want to leave you with that encouragement, the protection of the Son of God Himself. Forget a guardian angel. Forget all that. I, I get asked about that kind of stuff. Forget about that. You know what you have? You have a guardian Savior. The one who was born of God protects those who are born of God. He protects them from the evil one. The evil one does not touch him. He keeps them fast. He keeps them holy. He holds their hearts. And therefore, they have the promise of eternal life. And that's something that you can rest in and that you can be confident in as you pursue holiness. Those born of God can have confidence that Jesus will both answer their prayers and keep their hearts from evil. Let's pray. God, we confess having sinful hearts. We confess our sins that we have committed. Oh, but God, we confess them because we want to repent and we want to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Because we don't want to have weak, anemic, little prayer lives. Because we want confidence. Because we know that when we ask, we shall receive we pray according to your will. And so we, we pray that your will would master us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help give our souls rest in the idea of the one born of God protecting us. 
Christ, the victorious one, hemming us in, guard our lives and our heart toward that end.